Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Citizens. My name is CJ, um, and it's just so good to be in person with you right now. Uh, it's my first live sermon preaching in person in over a year, and so I'm just delighted that I, I don't have to preach to a screen anymore. I can be with you in the park together preaching. Why, God, why? Um, I'll be okay. I was just very excited to uh, to preach live today, but it is good to be here. Uh, God's word is still living and active and has much to say to us. Um, as you know, uh, September 11th, 2001 changed our country forever. I know we got a lot going on uh, in, in 2021, um, but we think back 20 years, um, just how much that event changed our country. Um, and I was doing some research this week on the new World Trade Center in New York City also known as Freedom Tower. It's the tallest building in the United States and Western Hemisphere, and it's the sixth tallest building in the world. It stands, I didn't know this, it stands at exactly 1,776 feet, uh, which is a deliberate reference to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Renee and I were actually supposed to travel to New York last fall for my 40th birthday, um, and we weren't able to because of COVID, which is very sad because I was excited to go to the memorial and see the new building and experience that. And I was thinking this week, how would it feel to be part of the construction of the new tower? Okay, so on the one hand, you're part of building one of the greatest architectural marvels of the 21st century. So that would be exhilarating. But on the other hand, the whole time you're drawing plans, laying a foundation, putting up beams, making design decisions, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, we shouldn't be here. We should not have to build this building. We have to build it, but if we could go back and have the old buildings, we would do it in a second. Right? That's the, that's the right way to feel. Now, we had to rebuild that tower right? as a nation for the sake of healing and hope. We didn't have a choice. Now, imagine that someone said to the architect, of the Freedom Tower. I want you to rebuild the World Trade Center, but you can only make it five stories tall. You can't build the replacement tower bigger, better, or stronger than the old one. How devastating would that be? What would it be like on the day the foundation was laid? Would there be like all this cheering and enthusiasm? Would any of us blame a worker or someone part of that project who just said, I can't do it. I'm out. I quit. It's just too painful. Now imagine that scenario and imagine what would someone need? Someone in despair, it's too painful, I can't participate in this. What would they need to hear just to have enough hope to do the task before them? 
I imagine the community coming around them, maybe someone they love, a mother or father, a boss, a coach, a mentor, a teacher, coming up behind them, placing their hands on them and just saying to them, be strong. You can do the work. Do not fear. I am with you. I'll be with you. We'll do this together. The nation of Israel in in the book of Haggai in chapter two are in this exact situation, okay? They're rebuilding a temple that was decimated some 67 years earlier. Some of them present were actually there when it was destroyed. They experienced firsthand the trauma and the tragedy of the destruction of the temple. And now they, with their kin, are called to rebuild it, but at a fraction of the size, with a fraction of the resources that Solomon used to build the original temple. The picture is, hyper, is, is parabolic for us. We are all being called to build something that pales in comparison to what we were meant for and to what someday will be when Jesus returns. The glory of a temple none the likes any of us has ever seen. And Jesus' message to us is the same as it was to the people of Israel in the midst of that building project. Be strong. Work, do not fear, I am with you. My presence in the temple is far more important than the grandness of the temple. Let me pray for us as we jump into our text this morning. God, we love you and praise you. God, we'll worship you anywhere. We'll worship you in the park. We'll worship you um, in an elementary school. We'll worship you in our living rooms. It's painful to not be with each other, but it's a gift. It's a gift to look each other in the eye, even through a screen today. God, we, we come this morning overwhelmed like Israel was to rebuild the temple. We need to feel your hands on our bodies. We need your touch to be palpable to our senses. We need you to admonish us with your word this morning, to stir us up to do good work in our own souls and the building of this church, your body. God, we, like the people of Israel, are easily disappointed by how unimpressive these building projects seem to us. It's easy to be apathetic. It's easy to be cynical, to have despondency. And so we need you to lovingly disrupt our lives today. We need gentle disruption. We need you to awaken your church. Breathe your breath, Holy Spirit, once again into our lungs. Set our hands to work. Give us strength. Protect us. Transform us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, You can turn to uh, the book of Haggai, chapter two. I'll have all the text on the screen as well. Haggai's in a section of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets, uh, which Dave reminded us a few weeks ago, just means they're smaller, not less important. If you missed the last two weeks, we are in the year 520 BC, and about 20 years prior, in about 540 BC, 
the nation of Israel returns home from Babylon where they had been displaced for 70 years. Now, one of their greatest tasks upon their return to Jerusalem, one of the most important tasks, if not the most important task, was to rebuild the temple. Now, I can't emphasize enough how important this building was for their life, their culture, their relationship with God. The temple represented the very dwelling place of God. To have the temple, to build the temple was to say, God, we want you to dwell in our midst. We know that you want to be in our midst, and so we're creating a space for you. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer writes this in her commentary in the book of, chapter, of Haggai. She says, when Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, calls for temple rebuilding, it is therefore an announcement that the Lord of hosts yearns to give himself again. That is what the book of Haggai is about. God's yearning to enter into covenant fellowship with his chosen people once more. Their years of abandonment under God's judgment are over. They should prepare themselves for the Lord's return. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may appear in my glory. Dave preached Haggai chapter one two weeks ago. Um, and in it, Haggai says a couple times, consider your ways. He's asking the people of God, why why have you built your own houses, but neglected to build the house of God? This morning in Haggai chapter two, we get a little bit more insight as to sort of all the dynamics that are going on and all that's contributing to their delay in beginning the temple, as well as now that they've started, they, they took it back up, but they're still discouraged in the process. And I want to talk about two, I want to point out two primary discouragements, keeping them from joy in the midst of building what God has called them to build. Um, comparison and delayed grief. Those are the two discouragements that are keeping them from, from having joy in the midst of doing what God has called them to do. Let's look at Haggai chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Okay, it's been one month. Okay, so Haggai chapter two is a new sermon a month after his sermon in Haggai one. And he, they respond well to his, his urging of them to get back going with building the temple. Um, but some of them are greatly discouraged. They're building this new temple directly on top of the ruins of the old temple. And the elderly among them, those who were present at its destruction, can't stop thinking about the tragedy of the destruction of the temple. Look at their language. Haggai says of this new temple, is it not nothing? Okay, what he means is, does this endeavor seem utterly worthless and utterly pointless to you? 
Um, I have an image here that, that shows something like a comparison of the old temple to the new. Okay, this isn't a perfect comparison because we actually don't know much. We don't know the details of what the second temple looked like. We just know that it was much smaller. The glory of Solomon's temple can't be measured. He hired the best artisans in the known world at the time. There were over 3,000 officials who oversaw the building of the first temple. Solomon incurred so much debt that he had to pay a, a, a neighboring king by giving him 24 towns in Galilee. He's like, here, let me pay you back with 24 towns for all the debt I owe you, okay? The people here are struggling to find joy in this new building project, okay? It's likely when they're in Babylon and they, they heard promises of God rebuilding the temple and them coming back to Israel, they likely hoped that when God brought them back, and promised to restore the temple, that it would be more of a supernatural eschatological event that didn't require their labor and brought a temple that far exceeded Solomon's. Okay, so Joyce Baldwin, who writes about Haggai, says this. She says, unfavorable comparison between the present and the past undermined all incentive to persevere. So what is God's response to their unfavorable comparison? This is what God offers. He says, yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. He says it again, be strong to Joshua. O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And finally the people, be strong all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Okay, if you are reluctant to let Jesus continue to build his temple in your body, if you are reluctant to participate in the building of the temple of his church, which is his body, because you are also fixated on comparison, struggling with comparison. Jesus would say to you this morning, just as he does to the nation of Israel, be strong, work, do not fear. I am with you. My presence in the temple is more important than the grandness of the temple. Okay? We struggle with comparison, just like they do. Okay? And a lot of it has to do, comes from a sense of self-hate within us. Don't let your hate for yourself or your struggle to love yourself keep you from building the temple that Jesus is building within your body. As you look at yourself, your body, your mind, your heart, your talents, your circumstances. Maybe you're comparing yourself to somebody else's temple or to some past version of yourself. God is inviting you to love yourself as you are and realize that the most beautiful part about you is that God's presence, the very presence of the living God dwells within you. Let that serve as the best motivation to do work within yourself.
You don't have to strive to make a place for Jesus to take up resident. He already has. All you have to do is say yes. Yes to his strength. Yes to his work. Yes to his protection. Yes to his indwelling presence. Now, why is God putting them through this? What is he trying to achieve within his people? As he, as he asks them to build this new tiny temple on the ruins of the, of the old glorious one. What's he trying to achieve? There's a clue in the timing of this message. Dave mentioned that Haggai is a rare book in the Bible where we actually have the exact dates it takes place. So we know the whole book of Haggai takes place over about five months. Today's message is on the last day of an annual festival called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Something that that the nation did every year and it commemorates the time period between Egypt, when God delivers the people out of Egypt, between that and when they enter the promised land, when the people of God and even God himself live in tents, okay? Tabernacles. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 23, verses 42 through 43. It says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so here they are building this unimpressive temple, all the while spending a week. They just got done spending a week living outside in tents. They weren't even living in these homes that they had built for themselves. The timing of this is intentional. God wants them to feel and remember the temporary nature of any earthly temple. God's saying, hey, you're not supposed to be impressed by this new temple you're building. You aren't supposed to build this temple thinking this is the greatest thing ever. Okay, God wants us to feel and grieve the difference between any earthly temple and the greater one that is to come. Because neither we nor God was ever meant for earthly temples. Small, unimpressive earthly temples are meant to remind us of a greater future temple. They make us long for something more, something better, a future time when Jesus, the true embodiment of the temple, will come in glory. So God is using, God will use comparison to prepare our hearts to enjoy him forever. Look at what Solomon himself says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. After he builds this luxurious, amazing temple. He says, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. So I think God would ask you and I this morning, brothers and sisters, can you handle the unimpressive size and condition of whatever earthly temple God has given you? 
Are you willing to sleep in a tent while you wait for Christ's return? See, as we build God's church together, so God, Jesus has made, taken up residence in us. He's going room by room to, to rebuild the temple of our own heart. There's an individual aspect of this, but then there's a collective corporate aspect of it. It's like you and I, the collective church, are called to build his church together. And as we do that, the goal is not to be the biggest, most impressive, longest lasting church in San Francisco. We need to build a church that still leaves us deeply longing for Jesus. That we'd say this church is good and I love it, but it doesn't compare to what Christ has for us when he returns. And so I just even personally, I was convicted this week about this, and I just want to take a moment to publicly praise Jesus and thank him for not building citizens the way I hoped he would in many ways. The size that he, I hoped that he would, with all the human metrics that I imposed on the building of this church, okay? Citizens is much more like a tent than some glorious temple, isn't it? And this is where I was going to say, all we have to do is look around, where are we right now? We're outside. Um, can you think of a greater cathedral than the great outdoors? Um, so that got ruined. That amazing sermon point was ruined, but you get the drift, right? <laughs> we're, in, we're in the tents of our Zoom machines right now or something like that. I don't know what that means, okay? There's a second reason for their discouragement. They're struggling with comparison. God's saying, hey, I have that for you. I can use comparison to cultivate in you a desire and a longing for my future kingdom. But there's a second reason for their discouragement, and it's delayed grief. Remember that when they first got back from Babylon 20 years or so ago, they actually started building the temple, but then they stopped. We have an account in the book of Ezra telling us what happened when they first laid the new foundation for the temple. I want to read from Ezra chapter 3. Verses 11 through 13. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, although many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. I read that this week, and I thought to myself, no wonder they quit. No wonder they quit. They didn't want to have to keep feeling what it felt like to relive the trauma of their past. And I thought, I'm exactly like them. I'm the same. Delayed temple building and delayed grief are like birds of a feather. We are like the people, 
are professional grief avoiders. We will do anything to push it away, to distract ourselves, to take up some other project, anything to occupy our minds and our hearts so that that trauma can be ignored. Robert Fial, a commentator in the book of Haggai, says this. He says about Haggai, the prophet is shrewd as he forces them to face up to what they are actually feeling and admit their grievous disappointment. What do we need to face up to? We can't shout with joy if we do not first weep with grief. And brothers and sisters, there's a lot to grieve in our stories. There's a lot to grieve in what we experience collectively. There's a lot to grieve in, in, in our relationships with one another, the brokenness in it. There's lots to grieve over this city. There's lots to grieve for our church. There are dreams that we have had that haven't been realized. We, this last year has, has been a year that's probably been one of the most painful years of our collective lives. We will have to face it, face the grief in order to move forward. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, A Grief Observed. He says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their equality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. What room inside your human temple is Jesus inviting you to join him in rebuilding, but you avoid it because it's too painful a room for you to enter. What if he wants this new building project to pale in comparison to what he has in store for your future? And the only way to prepare you for that future hope is to get, get you to begin working on building with him even now, even though, it will involve tremendous grief. If you are reluctant to let Jesus continue to build his temple in your body, if you are reluctant to participate in building the temple of his church, which is his body, because you are delaying your grief, Jesus is speaking to you this morning. He is saying, be strong. Work. Do not fear. I am with you. My presence in the temple is more important than the grandness of the temple. Haggai closes with this final word of encouragement. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God says, you do not need to fear. You can do the work because soon I will come like an earthquake. That does not sound like great news to me. I have joked this year that the only thing that could make this pasture worse is if we had an earthquake in San Francisco, right? (laughs) Earthquakes are bad. What is the Lord saying? What's he getting at? He's saying, when I come into your midst, there's a future day when I will come into your midst. And when I do, it will shake the world in a way that ushers in all of the rich treasures of my kingdom so that my glory will fill the earth. The temple I build will be more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. And when I do, it will usher in an era of peace. So God God is speaking here about a series of shakings or earthquakes that will occur in history. There's a present promise to build his temp, rebuild his temple, and they do. They finish the project. There's a promise to increase the stature of the temple they are building in the future, which does occur because hundreds of years later, during the time of Jesus, Herod actually restores the temple to its former glory and beyond its former glory. But most importantly, he's speaking about the future eschatological, or he's speaking about the future eschatological event of Christ's return in Revelation 21, 22, when Jesus comes as the temple that lights the new Jerusalem. There's a shaking there. But most importantly, he is speaking of one specific earthquake that is the climax of all of human history. In Matthew chapter 27, Verses 50 through 54 says this, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, okay? Jesus is hanging dead on the cross. God the Father turns his face away from his perfect son so that all of God's wrath stored up toward the sins of mankind can be poured out on Jesus, making a way for all people everywhere to once again dwell in the presence of God, regardless of some building made of brick and stone. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. This is what God means when he says he will shake the earth. The temple, as beautiful as it was when Solomon built it, still confined God. And only certain people on certain days, under certain circumstances, were even allowed to enter it. It was still a barrier between God and man. God says, there is a day coming when I will tear that dividing wall down with an earthquake and the world will never be the same. I was talking with Dave this week about 
about the sermon. I was telling about the illustration of the Twin Towers and the connection of that story with what we're reading. And he actually got to go last year to New York and see the memorial and was telling me just how painful it was to witness um, the memorial and the new building talking about just how eerie it was, how you could just feel a sense of despair. Um, And he was talking about how when you go to a war memorial, you think about the people who chose to make a sacrifice for their country. And so even as tragic as it is, there's something hopeful in it because these people gave their lives willingly of their own accord. They knew what they were going to. They chose into that. And so as painful as it is to go to any war memorial, you get the sense of like, but these people had agency. But that's not the case with the Twin Towers. Those people had their lives stolen from them, taken from them. It's devastating. Dave was describing to me the visual of the memorial where you don't have, unlike in our story, they didn't rebuild the new tower right on the ruins of the, of the other two towers Instead, at the memorial, you just see these two big holes in the ground where the towers used to be. And, and Dave was describing how it's, it's dark. It, it, the water goes down and it seems like there, there are these holes that sort of bottomless, this endless abyss. And it made me think about Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 17, the comparison of what Jesus faced when he says, for, the reason, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There is hope in Christ's death and his resurrection. As tragic as that is, he is not like a war veteran who gave his life. He is not like uh, the, the people in the towers whose lives were taken from them. It's painful and it's tragic, but it doesn't have despair because Christ willingly went to the cross. He had agency and died and then was able to res- to resurrect in his own power from the dead. So that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we look at the new temple, Jesus himself, we do not stare into an endless abyss of hopelessness, but instead into the corridors of a temple built not by human hands. And so brothers and sisters, this morning, God has something for us to build together. He has work for us to do. No one else can build this church. We have to. We have to decide as a body, collectively, what God has called us to. We can't look back and try to remember a better time, either in the history of this church or in some other church. God wants us to look forward Okay? We have to write, and I have a dream speech for this church, for this city. We have to ask God to give us a vision for what he has called this people to do at this time and this place. What does God want us to do? Where does he want to lead us? What will we have to grieve, both individually in our stories and together, to say, this is painful. 
This is sad. We need to grieve this together. What or to whom will we have to stop comparing ourselves to? Robert File says, God doesn't call us to work because that gets things done or to work because you'll feel better if you do. To work with God, to follow him, to take up his call to build his temple is about experiencing the presence of God now. And as we do that, to allow him to cultivate in us a deeper longing to experience the more full expression of his presence later. When we work to build his temple, even though it doesn't compare to what comes in the future, we are being prepared to enjoy God for eternity. And so I say to you and to myself this morning, brothers and sisters, church, temple of the living God, be strong. Work. Do not fear. I am with you. My presence in the temple is more important than the grandness of the temple. Let me pray for us. God, I just confess this morning how much I um, focus on and am fixated on earthly tents, earthly dwelling places, earthly temples. And how I easily get distracted by those things. Because taking up the work of, of restoring and redeeming the temple within myself and being participant in building your temple um, can be frustrating and painful. Forces me to grieve. It leaves me wanting and longing for something better. And so I just confess apathy and cynicism, and despondency. God, I just ask that you would help me and help all of us as citizens to do the work of grieving together, to stop comparing ourselves to others, to truly embrace and receive your presence within us and to delight in that and let that be enough for us. And God, I pray that you would show us as a church what you've called us to and that we would set out, set to work, that we would get to work. God, it'd be easy to, to look back on this year and just feel like, what's the point? But God, you're doing something and you're asking us to trust you. So help us do that. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.